Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Henry Kissinger, after he left the White House, he wrote a book called The White House Years, and in it he told a story about a Harvard professor that gave an assignment and he was receiving the papers back from his students, collected all of them, graded the papers, and then one paper he handed back to a student and at the bottom he just wrote, is this your best effort? Gave it back to the student, student went home, thought, oh, this really isn't my best effort. He reworked the paper, rewrote it. Turned it back in. Prof collected the paper from him, gave it back to him a couple days later, and again wrote on the bottom, is this your best effort? This went on ten times. Finally, the student thought, you know, this is my best effort. He walked up to the prof and he said, this is my best effort. This is the best that I can do on the subject. And the professor said, fine, then now I'll read it. Uh, a little frustrating, wasn't it? On the other hand, if you've ever had a teacher or professor or a coach, maybe a parent, who challenged you and pushed you beyond what you thought you could do and you achieved something or you became something more than you thought was even possible, you look back and you're really grateful for those kind of people. Uh, the Apostle Paul is a person like that for me. I read his works and, and I, don't, I don't feel guilty when I read his his stuff, I feel invited. I feel challenged. I read Romans 7. I say, man, this is a guy who understands it. He knows what it's like to struggle. He knows the difficulties. But he's pushing me and he's challenging me just as he pushes and challenges himself to, to, to press on. If you look at Paul's prayers, it's interesting. Very rarely does he pray for health or prosperity or safety. What he prays for is that we would grow in faith, that that our progress in the faith would move forward, that the progress of the gospel would move forward, that we would press on, that we would set aside not just the evil things, but we would set aside good things and push on toward the best. Paul begins his prayer for the Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3. I want us to begin reading again together in that verse. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Literally, that prayer is petition. It's a special kind of prayer. It's the word for petition. He says, I always offer my petition with joy in my every petition for you all. And then as Paul frequently does, he just goes on a tangent. And what he does is he he tells them for a little while why he's grateful for them, and he gives thanks. He says, this is why I'm thankful for you, because you're partners in the gospel. You share. We have fellowship in the gospel. We are most concerned about knowing Jesus Christ and making him known. And then in verse 9, he comes back and he says, now when I ask God for something on your behalf, this is what I ask. Verse 9, this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul says this, he says, I pray that you would choose the best, the greatest, the highest. I pray that you would press on. And for Paul, the greatest of these is love. Just as Jesus said when he's asked, what's the first and foremost commandment? He said, the first and foremost beyond any other is that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others. If I can boil all the commandments down to just these two, that's it. In Greek, there are at least three words for love. One is eros. That's erotic love. That's love that wants to take. It's selfish. There is phileo, that's affection. A brother feels for his brother, a parent feels for child, husband feels for wife. It's affection 
fond affection. And then there's agape. Interestingly, agape is not used much in classical Greek literature. It's just, it's not a very common word. When Jesus and the apostles wanted to talk about the love that God has for us and the love that he wants us to have for one another and for God himself, they grabbed this word that really wasn't used much and they infused it with new meaning because eros wasn't appropriate and phileo wasn't enough because phileo applies to people you know and like. Agape goes way beyond that. Agape is sacrificial and it's unconditional. Uh, agape love is love that's choice. Affection's not bad. If you notice here in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And uh, that word for affection is talking about the inward parts. Uh, for both Jews and Greeks, the heart wasn't the seat of emotion. The heart was the place where you had um, mind, thinking, consciousness, uh, will, and choice. Emotion happened here. Man, I ache for you. And Paul says, I ache for you. I really, really long for you. I have affection toward you. So affection's not bad, but what he wants them to move forward in is beyond affection, it's love. It's agape love. Probably the best description of this is in Christ's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five and verse 43 Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's that's love that the world understands. Love your neighbor. Love the one that you have affection for. Love the one who's nearby and you really enjoy. But your enemy, hate him. That's the common teaching of the day. And Jesus said, let me reorient, reorient your mind towards something much greater. Verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, okay? Love your enemies. Love is choice. Jesus is not saying, have nice thoughts and feelings about your enemies. Have nice thoughts and feelings about those who harm you and beat you and persecute you and take all your money and they take your property. He's not, that's ridiculous. But he is saying love. Okay, choose to pursue what is best for that person. Unconditionally and sacrificially. Why? Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. To be the son of something means that you have the characteristics of. Okay, a son of God, a daughter of God, has the characteristics of God. He said, if you want to be like God, a child of God has these characteristics. God loves. God loves even those who hate him. Verse 46 says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the kind of love that he has. Anybody, even even Gentiles, that the Jews considered as dogs, even tax collectors, the lowest in our social scale, these these horrible people in our society, they know how to love people who are lovable. Jesus says, I'm not even talking to you about that. That's easy. Anybody can do it. I'm talking about God love, something that only God can produce in you, something that is a reflection of the very nature of God because God is love, agape love. God is love. 
He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He gives sun. He gives blessing to the righteous and the unrighteous. Why? So that they would see his goodness and turn to him. He pours out the best upon them. He gives them what is best for them. So Jesus in his teaching would look at his disciples and he'd say, this is how all men will know that you're my followers if you have this kind of love for one another because you can't produce it. And they'll see you sacrificing and serving them even when they're unkind to you and they're ungrateful. They never say thank you. Even when they're abusive and they persecute you, you still love them and you still initiate with them and you give. You make yourself vulnerable again and they say, wow, that must be what God is like. That's how Jesus could hang on the cross and he looks down upon those who have beaten him and they have mocked him. They've they've spit in his face and they put a crown of thorns on his head and pounded it down and he's in pain and he's bleeding and he's suffering and he says, Father, forgive them. Release them from this debt. Do you want to be sons of the Most High? Do you want to be like God? Then that's the way that we love. I read a book several years ago by a guy named Juan Carlos Ortiz. It was called Disciple. And uh, a long time ago, I don't remember all the details of the story, but uh, he was preaching a sermon on love. His church was having a lot of conflict. There was a lot of uh, unloving behavior going on. And so he said, this is the text, love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another, how can you say you love God, but you don't love your brother? Love one another. Next week, everything stayed the same in his church. All these conflicts kept going on and strife. There was not forgiveness. So the next week, he stood up and he preached the same sermon. (laughs) Well, I'm going to try that sometime. Wow. His elders pulled him aside afterwards. They go, you know, (laughs) that was the same sermon. He goes, I know. Well, next week, nothing changed. So he got up and he preached the same sermon again. I can't remember how long this went on. He did this several weeks in a row. Finally, he got frustrated. And so he just stood up one Sunday and he said, love one another, and then sat down. And they came to him and they said, well, can we get on with you know, the next topic? And he said, yes, we can. As soon as we start to apply this one, because this is fundamental Christianity. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that we love one another, even those who are unkind and unforgiving toward us, we choose to initiate, we choose to forgive, we choose to give them the best. How is that humanly possible? It's not. Okay? Notice Paul's prayer back with me in Philippians 1, verse 9. Paul says, In this I pray, here's my petition, that your love might abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. What Paul is saying is love can grow. And the challenge is that love would grow. That it would abound. This is one of Paul's favorite words, abounding. Uh, I want you to turn back with me to 1 Thessalonians. Lance read this passage earlier. I want to read it again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul is not rebuking the church in Philippi. He's not rebuking the church in Thessalonica. He's saying what you're doing is wonderful. Now what I want to see happen is that your love would abound. It was interesting, uh, we were just, uh, I was just sitting here and Buck looked over me and he said, you know, I just realized something. The word abound, it means in English, without boundaries. Okay, the word A, it's called an alpha privative. It means no boundaries. Okay? That's what Paul prays. Look in chapter 3, verse 11. It says, now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. 
May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. It says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need of anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. This is essential Christianity. For indeed, you do practice love toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, excel still more. I think our church is an incredibly loving church. We've had a lot of folks in the last several years who've really gone through challenging trials, deep trials, and I've seen other members of this body come around them and serve them and love them and sacrifice for them. I've seen conflicts resolved and forgiveness issued, and I think what Jesus Christ would say to our church this morning is, abound still more. Excel still more. The love of God knows no boundaries. It's not bound. And God can produce that kind of love in you that moves beyond. A beautiful illustration of this is in in the Gospels. Uh, Matthew chapter 14, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. But before he feeds them, he looks out on this multitude and the disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, these folks are really hungry. It's getting late. It's time for us to eat something, take a nap, go to sleep, rest for the night. Could you get rid of them? You're the teacher. You're the only one who can dismiss them, and we would like for you to do that right now. Or give us the authority. Would you delegate that to us so we can get them away? And Jesus said, well, they're hungry. Why don't you give them something to eat? <laughs> Jesus, look, money box. You know, if we, if we purchased bread with this money here, we could give everybody a crumb. And so well, what do you have? Five loaves, two fish. Five loaves, two fish. What does Jesus do? He starts to break it. He's giving thanks. He says... Thank you, our God, maker of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe who brings forth bread from the earth. He brings down the pieces that he's broken and, and they just they seem to grow. I, don't, I wish I could have seen that. What did it look like? Well, they start passing it out and Jesus keeps giving them more and more and more. Uh, the text says 5,000 men, which means including the women and children, you're probably looking at 10,000 plus. And at the end of the meal, it says they all ate and they were satisfied. Oh, Jesus, no more fish. No more bread. I'm stuffed. Is everybody stuffed? Okay, well, go pick up the leftovers. And what do they do? They come back, and what's left? Twelve baskets. Now, I don't think that's accidental. Twelve baskets, twelve tribes of Israel. You're saying what God can provide can stuff you, and then there's going to be leftovers. The word for leftover is from the word for abound. It's abundance. When God decides to feed you, He's going to stuff you. He's going to provide a superabundance, something that is without boundaries. Next chapter, the disciples forget the lesson all over again. We've got 4,000 men, which means probably eight to 10,000 people. And he says again, feed them. We can't. We don't have the resources. Of course you don't have the resources, but I do. I have them. Okay, just ask me. And he feeds everybody. And what happens? Pick up the scraps. We got seven baskets left over, which is the number of perfection for the Gentiles. There's more than enough for all the nation of Israel and then leftovers. There's more than enough for all the Gentiles and then leftovers. There's a super abundance. What does God want to produce in your life? Can you love that person? No. You've only got five loaves and two fish. And they need a whole basket. The kind of love God wants to produce in you is a super abundance. Another beautiful illustration when... uh, Jesus sees his disciples and they're struggling. They're trying to catch fish. He's standing on the shore. Remember that? And, and uh, they haven't caught anything all night and they're struggling because in their own strength, they can't pull up a single fish. 
And this is how they make their living. And they're hungry and they're tired. And the fishing time is over. And Jesus said, well, why don't you just throw it on the other side of the boat? And what I love about the story is Jesus doesn't look at them and say, okay, we got 11 of them, one of me, one fish a person. I'll put 12 fish below the boat. No, they, they throw the net down and they start to pull it up. And these nets start to tear and break. There's so many fish, they have to get another boat to come along. And all their workers, and they haul them up onto the land. And Jesus is like, do you get it? You can't pull a single fish out of that sea. But I can break your nets. So when Paul's praying, he says, this I pray, that your love would break the nets. That your love would know no boundaries. That your love would have baskets overflowing. You'd have leftovers. It's not something you can produce, but God can grow that love in you. Notice a third characteristic of this love. It's a love that discerns. Look with me again in Philippians chapter 1. It says, This I pray that your love might abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment. Now sometimes when I read the Bible, I think, if I were writing the letter, what would I say? kind of helps me get a little insight into where's the author going? It's different than where I would have gone. If I had said, this I pray that your love might abound still more and more, I would have said that your love might abound still more and more in zeal. Your love would abound still more and more in passion, that your love might abound still more and more even in, in uh, effort or energy or good works. But he says, I pray that your love would abound still more and more in real knowledge. You know, normally, we, you know, we got to admit this, when we think about people, we kind of categorize them in one or two places. We think about smart people and loving people. And the smart people aren't that loving and the loving people aren't that smart, right? But Paul says, no, 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 no. Christians who are really filled with the Spirit have knowledge and love. Love informed by knowledge. The two are inseparable. Knowledge in the Old Testament, uh, it had the idea of, of relationship tied in. Okay, knowledge meant that God has revealed himself and you have responded to that revelation and accepted it and entered into a relationship. And so your life is according to truth. That's real knowledge. Paul is saying, I'm praying that your love would grow, grow in real knowledge. The two are inseparable. And it would grow in all discernment. Discernment's a word in the New Testament. It's only used here in Philippians chapter 1. It's the only place. In the Old Testament, Greek translations used 27 times. 22 of those times in Proverbs. Insight. It's related to wisdom. It's seeing life as it actually is. And then loving a person according to what they actually need. Do you know that? No, you don't, but God does. So you're drawing upon the the knowledge and the insight that comes from a deep personal relationship with God. And he shows you how to love according to truth. And how to give what's best. This love is a choice. It's love that grows, that God stretches. Not what you can naturally give, and it's love that discerns. Fourth, it's love that tests and approves. Look in verse 10. Here's the purpose. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. The word for approving, again, is the idea of um, testing gold. Does it have alloy in it? Uh, is it pure? Um, has it been tested and shown to be value, valuable? Of oxen, they're tested. Can they pull the load? Do they work together? Are they valuable? Paul says, I want you to test and approve the things that differ, literally the things that are excellent. Okay, the things that are beyond good. 
the things that really matter in life, the best things. Choose those things. As Christians, we need to be students of the Word. And one of the things that being a student of the Word can help us do is it can help us understand and discern our culture. Be students of our culture, too, because the Word's telling us one message. This is what's valuable. This is what's best and most important. And our culture's sending us an entirely different message. How do we know what our culture thinks is valuable? Well, listen. Listen. What does our culture talk about? Uh, I don't get the newspaper anymore. I just go online, and I go to a bunch of different sources. Uh, sometimes I'll go to Yahoo News. And so this week, I did a little research on Yahoo News. I thought, what does Yahoo News think is important in our culture. Okay? They probably do a lot of market research because they sell their advertising dollar on what's important. They want to have everything on that front page that they think the culture is interested in and the culture thinks is valuable. So I looked at the, the tabs, the bars across the top, and I'm making a couple of assumptions. One, I'm going to say it's fairly comprehensive because they don't want to miss out on any advertising dollars. right? And the other thing, since we read from left to right, I'm going to assume that what they think is most important is going to start on the left and we're going to move to the right. Maybe not, but you know, in terms of importance, probably goes across like that. So, what do you think was on the tab bar? First, U.S. news, because we're most concerned about ourselves, right? Right. It didn't start with world news; it started with U.S. news. That's what we're concerned about. Second, business, the economy, because we are a culture that is incredibly concerned and consumed with our material comfort and well-being. And I say that, and you go, yeah? Of course. I mean, we, the problem for us is we're like fish in water. We don't, we don't know that that's not necessarily the best. There are actually cultures you can travel to in the world where the thing that's most important in the culture is not material prosperity. You can actually travel to cultures in the world where they'll actually stop in the middle of the day producing anything valuable and sit and talk. I know, it's crazy. I don't know what they're thinking, but there are actually cultures like that. This this is not one of them. This isn't one of them. So we've got U.S. news, then business news, and then I think, uh, yeah, world, because we want to know how the world affects our financial prosperity and our comfort, right? Then you have entertainment, which is a big category. Uh, My office is right outside of the coffee maker, and where the sink is and the water, Culligan water, which is, you know, that's the modern day water cooler. And it's, my office is the noisiest office and I get to hear all of the talk that happens in our office. Once in a while I hear theological conversations. <laughs> but I hear a lot of conversations about uh, lost and the office. <laughs> Not our office. You click on entertainment, what do you see? You see television, you see movies, you see music, you see fashion, okay? That's right near the top. And then sports, okay? And sports comes even before science and technology or health. And then there's a tab that says most popular. I gotta find out that. What's most popular? What's most popular uh, this last week was a story about the weather, Don't we talk about the weather when there's nothing else to talk about? Well, no, because the weather up in the Northeast was really affecting the economy. (laughs) So we got to talk about the weather. It's influencing our lifestyle. So Yahoo's telling us if, if you really have a grasp on these areas of life, that's it. 
There aren't any other tabs. I mean, I looked all around the page. I couldn't find one that said judgment in the afterlife. I looked, you know. There's no, you're going to live forever, and what are you going to do after you die? You're all going to die, and have you considered eternity and standing before the great judge and creator of the universe? I didn't find a tab. It's too long. So there's no tab for that. There's no tab, actually, even for religion and philosophy in general. Because we don't really want to talk about those big issues in life. This last week, I was uh, getting ready for a hockey game. We're all sitting in the locker room. We're putting on our equipment. And two guys start talking about the closing of Guantanamo Bay. And they get into this argument, getting into this debate. It's going around. A few other guys are jumping in. And uh, nobody knows that I'm a pastor, hardly at all in the league, which is fine because sometimes I get penalties. So I don't tell anybody... (laughs) And I don't broadcast it, but I'm sitting there and they're going back and forth. But this one guy, a friend of mine, he knows, uh, there are actually a couple guys in there, they don't don't know I'm a pastor. This guy leans over, he goes, next we're going to talk about religion. Our corner got real quiet. (laughs) I'm going to talk about religion in the locker room, getting ready for a hockey game. Hmm. I'll talk about that. So if you've covered all of these topics, is your life full? Is it rich? Have you chosen the absolute best? I'm not saying that any of these things are are innately bad. I've got a lot of interest in politics and the economy, the world. I like sports a lot. I, I like to watch um, Lost. I'm hooked on Lost. I like Lost. Uh, I, I'm, it's entertaining to me. I, I wouldn't say all these things are innately bad. Sometimes there are things that you do. For me, hockey, it's, it's, it's enjoyment. God, right now, he's given me the strength to do it, and I enjoy it. It's, it's Honestly, it's just part of using this body that he's given me, and I'm thankful. These different interests, sometimes there are opportunities for us just to worship God. We give thanks for the way that he's made us, the interests that he's given us. We love him. And oftentimes these interests are opportunities to love one another, to get into other people's world and to love one another, but we should never forget the point that what's absolutely most important in life is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love others as ourself. And if we miss that, we miss everything. So Paul says, This I pray that your love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And he doesn't distinguish. Is he talking about love for God or love for others? He just says love. Yes, love for God and love for others. People should interact with Grace Bible Church and, and they say, you know, man, I just, that church is so loving. Every once in a while, I just got to say, stop loving me. You people, you just give and give and give. And you sacrifice so much. Wow. If your God is like that, I want to know your God. That's what God wants to produce in us. So that's what Paul prays for. He doesn't even pray for health or prosperity or safety for them. He says, this I pray that your love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you would approve, test and approve the things that are excellent. Why? So that you'd be sincere and blameless in the day of Jesus Christ. Notice this prayer, verse 10. So you'd approve the things that are excellent. Verse 11, verse 10. In order to be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ. Second big portion of Paul's prayer is that they would be prepared for the day. As believers in Jesus Christ, our eternity is secure. The moment that we believe that Christ died for our sins, we have eternal life. It's a gift. We don't earn it. We can't lose it, but there will come a day. It's called the day of Christ. Day of Christ refers to a variety of things. Sometimes the second coming, sometimes the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment seat of Christ is a day for us 
We stand before Jesus as believers and he says, did you live well? Did you choose the best? It's a big day. It's a huge day. And we've all had big days in our lives. What do we do for big days? You get ready. You get prepared. You get engaged. What do you do? You get ready. It takes a long time, I learned. I remember when we first got engaged, I was told, well, you need to give Tristy at least six to nine months. I'm thinking, six to nine months? What in the world? I had love but no knowledge, right? So I'm thinking to myself, what's the big deal? Go pick out a dress, order a cake from Kroger. I can reserve a room. So we'll find somebody to do the wedding. Call your parents. Let our friends know and they'll show up. What do you need, a week and a half? I love without knowledge. You've know, you got to get prepared for this day, and it's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of energy. It's going to take a lot of money. You've got to get ready for that day because it's a big one. Find out your wife's pregnant. You've got to get prepared for that day. Well, you've got nine months. I guess it's the same theory, you know? <laughs> so here we go. We've got nine months to get ready. So could you repaint the room? i got the room repainted. Purchase the crib. The crib is set up. The bedding is put on the, the crib. And then we've got the changing table and then the diaper genie. If you're a parent, you know that's for poopy diapers. They don't stink up the house. There you go. And you've got a rocking chair, and you've got your diapers laid out, and we've got six more months, right? <laughs> but we're ready. We're prepared. And then you have the child, and you go, I was so unprepared. <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to do. You've got tests coming up. What do you do for the test? You prepare. You study all night. Not all week. <laughs> Say so all night, and then you, you, know, you, you, you lay out your Scantron and your number twos, and there they are. They're, they're laying right out there, you're, so you're ready, and you're prepared, and you go in, and there's some fool who shows up. They got no Scantron. They got number, no number two pencil. They go, test. Oh, can I buy a pencil? Can I? Yeah, you can. You got cash. They're totally unprepared for the day. My favorite profs were the ones who prepared you for the day. They said, here are the chapters that I'm going to test over, and there's a test bank. Look at the test bank. I'm going to pull questions out of the test bank. That's what my dad always did. He didn't want them surprised. The thing that frustrated him most is the students never looked at his test bank. He said, you can be prepared. I'm going to tell you what's going to be on the exam. I don't want to trick you. I want you to know. You know, God's provided us with a test bank. He tells us, here's the standard of evaluation. Here's what I'm going to look at. Look in chapter 1, verse 10. So that you may approve the things that are excellent, the things that really matter. Why? So that you can be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. First, he tells us he's going to look at our motives. That you would be sincere. He's not going to look just at the things that we do, the externals. God goes right into the heart. Why did you do that? Whose glory were you after? The word for sincere is interesting. We're not exactly sure where it came from, but it's a combination of two words. One is to judge, and the other is the son. The idea was, uh, theoretically, that it came from, from being, something being judged by the son. Uh, when people would go into the marketplace, they would buy a piece of pottery, a vessel to use in their home. Sometimes there were unscrupulous vendors who would take broken vessels and they put them back together with wax, and then they would coat them over. You couldn't tell that it was broken. The only way you would know if you were wise is you'd hold it up to the sunlight and the sun would shine through the wax. You'd see the cracks. And so the theory is that's where the word came from. It means uh, judged by the sun. So God's going to hold up our lives is the image. And it's going to be judged by the sun. 
What was, what was our motivation? Did it just look good on the outside, painted over? Or is it sincere? There's no cracks. What, was our, what were our motives? Second, that you'd be sincere and blameless. Uh, this word for blamelessly means not causing to stumble. What was my impact on the lives of those around me? Because of my life, did they walk closer with Jesus Christ? Were they challenged and encouraged and motivated to walk closely with the Lord? Or did they stumble because of my example or my words? Were they tripped up? Third, alignment. Alignment particularly with Christ. He says, having been filled with the fruit that comes from righteousness. Righteousness means uh, it's a standard. The standard is the character of God, the character of Jesus Christ. It's not about the varnish on the outside. It's not about the externals. It's not about, uh, I, I go to church every Sunday. I memorize lots of verses. I read my Bible for hours a day. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It's character that can't be faked. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Okay, he starts there. Greatest of these is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's a love that gives to those who are enemies. It's a love that that gives when people are ungrateful and unkind. It's a love that continues to pursue the best for the other person, no matter what, because it's a love that abounds, a love without boundary. Joy. Paul talked about that last week. It's something that transcends circumstances. It's not merely happiness. It's joy, it's confidence, love, joy, peace. Circumstances don't rile me up because my eternity is secure. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It says, against such things there is no law. These are always appropriate. These are always beautiful things because this is the character of God. And then fourth, what's the source? It says, filled with the fruit of righteousness, which fruit comes through Jesus Christ? to the glory and praise of God. The tree does not strive to produce fruit. The tree strives to put its roots deeper and deeper and deeper. It reaches down for water. It reaches down for nutrients in the soil. And what's the result? Inevitably, the result is its branches extend and it it impacts the lives of others. Fruit is born. Character is changed and transformed. What's the source of your life? Is it, is it independent of God? Is it self-righteous? Or is it all to the honor and the glory and the praise of Jesus Christ? Well, how do you know? Well, for me, uh, I know if I'm thankful. If I'm thankful. Something happens in my life, and what's immediately on my heart and my mind and my lips is to give God thanks. Uh, with our kids, I want them to have really great self-images, so I praise them all the time. I see my son running. I go, Ben, man, you, you are really fast. God gave you fast legs. Man, Anna Joy, that picture is so beautiful. You have a really wonderful sense of color. God gave you a great sense of color. Ben, you're really good at figuring out that math problem. God gave you a good mind, a sharp mind. Let's give him thanks. And so every time I compliment them, I remind them, what's the source of all this? You have nothing apart from God. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? It all comes from God. And if I'm thankful, then I know that my source is God. And all my life, the whole object of my life then can be to the honor and the glory and the praise of Jesus Christ. 
Now, this letter of Philippians is designed to stir us up. Paul has this wonderful, holy discontent. He's not complacent. So when he begins to exhort his people and he prays for his people, he says, I'm not rebuking you, but what I am praying is that your love would abound. Okay, no boundaries, that you would excel still more. And I have no doubt that what Jesus Christ wants to do in every one of our lives this morning is to push us. Wherever you are, I don't know where you are and what God wants to challenge you on, but I know that God is not complacent or content. He wants to take you where you are and push you beyond. And it's not something that you can produce on your own. It's only something that through the source of the righteousness of Jesus Christ placed in you that God can produce. So I want us to take a few moments. Ask the Lord, God, where are you wanting to stretch? Produce something that's beyond what mere human effort could do. What are you trying to do in my life? Let's take a few moments before the Lord and then I'll close this. Heavenly Father, I do not know what the message is that you have for for each individual, but I do know that your great longing is that we would continually be made more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. He is perfect. He is beautiful. His personality is lovely. And Lord, I pray that um, from a place of complete acceptance in you and that security that we would have the confidence uh, to stretch Lord, I pray for each person here individually. I pray for this group, this body of believers, that you would stretch us so that a community would look in and they would see us and they would say, wow, look at the way that they love one another. Look at the way that they love us. I would love to know their God. Father, that's supernatural. It's not something that we can produce. I pray that you would do it through us and then in the end you would receive all honor and glory and praise through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.